Hey everyone, Emma and I are continuing to take turns featuring the anti-racism educational resources that we are engaging with each month because we believe that education leads to open hearts and free voices that are empowered to speak up and fight for change. Our hope is that you will find these resources useful for your education and that they will also help you to cross the threshold into doing active anti-racism work so that we can create an equitable world together. We love you all. Black Lives Matter. A few months ago, I learned about the Crown Act, which aims to end discrimination of Black men, women, and children who choose to wear their hair naturally and in hairstyles connected to their racial identity, including making workplace and school policies around hair that deem Black hair styles to be unprofessional, inappropriate, or grounds for suspension expressly illegal. Crown stands for Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair and is a law that prohibits race-based hair discrimination, which is denial of employment and educational opportunities because of hair textures or protective hairstyles, including braids, locks, twists, and bantu knots. I want to share a few statistics from the Crown Act website. Black women are one and a half times more likely to get sent home from a workplace because of their hair. 80% of Black women agree with this statement. I have to change my hair from its natural state in order to fit in at the office. I was shocked to learn that this type of protection was only signed into law in the state of Colorado where I live in March of this year, as in 2020. Until then, discrimination against black hair was not explicitly illegal. As of today, only seven of the 50 states have signed this act into law. Recently, the Crown Act passed in the House of Representatives, but it still has an uphill battle to get passed by the current Senate. But here is what you can do. Visit the official website, thecrownact.com, and support this act by signing the petition and sending letters to your legislators. The coalition has also provided a template for you to do that. You can also check out the resources page and find out ways to bring the Crown Act to your state. Also, if you've ever experienced hair discrimination, I want you to know that they also have resources to help you. I know that not all of our listeners live in the U.S., and I encourage you to look into what types of protections or lack of protection for natural black hair exist where you live and see if there are any organizations working to change that. I'll leave you with this statement as the Crown Coalition's call to action to join the movement. People should not be forced to divest themselves of their racial cultural identity by changing their natural hair in order to adapt to predominantly white spaces in workplace or in school. Again, to get help, learn more, or get involved, go to thecrownact.com and you can follow them on Instagram at thecrownact. The links are in the show notes. Welcome to the Full Heart Free Voice podcast. I'm Emma Veritas. I'm a writer and writing coach for women who want to start writing. And I'm a teacher for women who want to find their true selves again. And I'm Caitlin Bosshart, a life coach for the multi-passionate at heart and wedding coach for couples planning non-traditional weddings. We read books that inspire you to live with a full heart and a free voice. Hey everyone, before we get started with today's episode, we have a fun announcement for you. So Caitlin and I have recently opened up our affiliate shop. 
Our affiliate shop is a library of resources by Clarissa Pincola Estes, and you can find it at wildauthenticity.com forward slash podcast shop. And when you go there, you'll find a list of links to Women Who Run With the Wolves, but also to all of Clarissa Pincola Estes's audio classes that she's done through Sounds True. And when you buy these through these links, you support Clarissa Bingola Estes, you support Sounds True, which is a very cool independent publisher, and you support our podcast because Sounds True has a very generous and amazing affiliate percentage that they give to us whenever you buy something. So it's this beautiful win-win-win, and it's also an opportunity for you to dive deeper into these educational resources. And so I just wanted to ask Caitlin today, Caitlin, what is one thing you have loved about listening to Clarissa Binkle Estes's audio classes? Well, I think it's, you know, when we are diving in so intimately with her work and in a way it's like, I don't know about you, but there's been times I'm like, oh, it's Clarissa Binkle Estes. Like there's a little bit of this, like, I don't know, she's like ethereal, I think in some ways in my mind and in this, but you know, there was something that was so nice is, um, you know, when I listen to her audios, I get to hear her voice and I get, there's like a, there's, I don't know, for me, there's like a sense of her heart and her intention that comes through in a way that, you know, now that I, now that I've listened to her voice and how she tells these stories, when I'm reading, I I hear her, I hear like her tone and how she kind of explains things. And it gives me a different, level of understanding, I think of, of the way that she is expressing her, her ideas and her thoughts and her wisdom. And so that's been one of the coolest things that it's just like another level of kind of getting to know this author that we are engaging with so intimately and learning from. And we also want to let you know, there is a short audio class titled The Red Shoes, which is the story we'll be studying for our next two episodes. So if you'd love to dive deeper into this topic, we invite you to go to wildauthenticity.com forward slash podcast shop and click on our special link to purchase the class. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to our book club study of Women Who Run With the Wolves, where we are talking about chapter eight, self-preservation, identifying leg traps, cages, and poisoned bait. This chapter focuses on the very real consequences to heart, mind, and soul that can happen when we get stuck in the trap of living a life that looks right on the outside, but feels wrong on the inside. This chapter is for those of us who want to write, make art, sing, or do any kind of creativity, but we have trouble doing these things because we worry about what others will think of us. It's also for those of us who want to experience true fulfillment, but reach for distractions instead. And it's for those of us who really need to see the traps we've fallen into that are keeping us from our soul life so that we can break free from those traps. In this chapter, Dr. Estes offers us the story of the red shoes. You might have read the Hans Christian Andersen version of this story, but the version Dr. Estes offers us is a Magyar Germanic version of the story she was given by her aunt, Teresa. In the red shoes, we hear the story of a little girl who is going about her business, living a hard but creatively fulfilling life, 
And then this little girl gets caught in the trap of living an easy life, one that looks right, but actually means death for her soul. I am going to tell you the story now, and then after, I will explain to you how this story is a symbol for the very traps we encounter when we too have lost our soul life. There was once a motherless girl who lived in the woods. She had no shoes, so she made her very own pair by piecing together scraps of red cloth. She loved her handmade red shoes. They made her feel rich even though she was far from wealthy. One day, a glittering carriage drove by her on the road. An old woman opened the window and she invited the little girl to come live with her. The girl got into the carriage and went to the old woman's house where she was washed, given new clothes and a beautiful new room. The next day, she asked the old woman where her red shoes had gone. But the old woman said the shoes and all her old clothes were so dirty and ridiculous they had to be thrown into a fire. The little girl was incredibly sad. She had loved her red shoes. At her new home, she was made to sit still without talking and be a good girl. She spent her days feeling bored and longing for her old handmade red shoes. On the day of the innocence, the little girl was going to be confirmed, so the old woman took her to the shoemaker to get a new pair of shoes. The woman's eyes were very bad. She couldn't see the shoes on the shelves, and so the little girl picked a bright and glittering new pair of red shoes. The shoemaker gave them to her with a twinkle in his eyes. She wore her new red shoes to the confirmation service, and the people in the church were shocked They told the old woman about those shoes, and the woman told the girl to never wear them again. But the girl's yearning for those new red shoes only grew bigger. They were all she could think about. So the next Sunday, she put them on her feet again. On her way into the church, an old soldier called out, What beautiful shoes! And he asked if he could dust them off. When he did, he tapped the soles of each shoe. Right then, the little girl's feet itched, then twirled, then started to dance. The girl was exhilarated by the big, beautiful dance her feet were doing. She danced and danced all around the churchyard with a big smile on her face. She wasn't aware of any trouble until she tried to stop, but couldn't. Her feet just kept on dancing. The old woman and the coachman tried to take the shoes off, but they wouldn't budge. Those new red shoes danced the little girl down the road and out into the woods. She danced and danced until she was so exhausted, she danced herself straight to the executioner's house. Please cut off my shoes, she begged. The executioner cut the straps off her shoes, but no matter how hard they tried, the shoes would not come off. Finally, the little girl asked him to cut off her feet, and he did. The red shoes, with her feet in them, danced out into the forest, and the little girl never ever wished for those red shoes again. Dr. Estes explains that this tale highlights eight traps that can keep you from living the soulful life you truly long for. First, there is the trap of the gilded carriage. When you give up, 
the interesting, unique thing you are doing in order to do something that looks right to the outside world. Second, there is the trap of the dry old woman. When the wise woman part of you becomes blind and can no longer see what it is you truly desire. Next, there is the trap of burning the treasure. When you unwittingly give up what you love and create a deep hunger in your soul. Fourth, there is the trap of injury to basic instincts. When you become so disconnected, you no longer know when to flee a situation that is harming you. Next, there is the trap of sneaking a secret life. When you try to do what you love, but only in secret rushed times and never openly claiming your uniqueness. Sixth, there is the trap of cringing before the collective. When you feel swayed by the community at large to not pursue your creative life. Seventh, there is faking it, trying to be good, or normalizing the abnormal. When you pretend to be okay with what you know you are not okay with. Lastly, there is dancing out of control. When you are dried and parched from not writing, not creating art, not living your truth, or not being who you really are. You become so dried up that you turn to an addiction or obsession that looks like the thing you love, but really creates more negative consequences in your life. If you are listening to these descriptions and becoming aware that you might be in one or more of these traps, we want you to know there is no shame in finding yourself in one of these places. These traps are here for any and all of us, no matter who we are. The most important thing is to learn how to become aware of the traps because seeing and acknowledging is always the first step to breaking free. So in today's episode, Caitlin and I are going to talk about the traps that stood out the most for each of us. And we'll tell you stories about these traps and how we broke free from them. Our hope is that our stories will help enrich your understanding of this chapter and also bring you the inspiration for living a life that will bring you true joy. Okay, so Emma, why don't you start us off and tell us about a couple of the traps that really stood out to you? Yeah, so I think the first trap and the third trap actually really, really stick out for me. So that's the one of the gilded carriage. And the other one is burning the treasure. And I love this part of the story and the way how Dr. Estes explains it, how, you know, the girl is living out in the woods and she is struggling, right? But she has her handmade red shoes. And when the woman comes and takes her, it looks like she's going to have this easy life. But the easy life comes at this great cost to her soul because in order to live that easy life, the cost is that her beautiful creation, her handmade shoes get burnt in the fire. And it's the burning of those shoes that creates that deep hunger in her and desperation for something else, like what's going to satisfy this hunger in her soul. But if she's going to keep living that life with the old woman, she can't have her unique, interesting, quirky handmade shoes. 
And so I love that part because it just really reminded me of this time in my life where my life was really like that. Like, um, I wasn't very wealthy. I was struggling financially through my 20s, but I had kind of hobbled together a bunch of different jobs. Like I worked at a cafe. I worked, I taught preschool. I worked at a library. Like I did a bunch of interesting jobs that I enjoyed. And when I hobbled those jobs together, I was able to pay my rent. You know, I was able to get groceries. I was able to do what I needed to do in my life and enjoyed it. You know, I had fun. But at one point, I ended up applying for a job in my area and I got it. And it was like an office job, a cubicle job. And I thought, oh, this is it. This is the job where I get to have one job. I get to like not be exhausted. I have this regular schedule. Like I can predict when I'm going to work ahead of time. I'm getting this bigger paycheck, which is great. I mean, no shame for that, for, <laughs> for having a bigger paycheck. That was legitimately wonderful. Um, but the thing was that the job I ended up picking in order to get me that like wonderful bigger paycheck really did kill my soul. And I remember saying that all the time. I'd sit in my cubicle and I had, I made a great quirky friend who sat in the next cubicle over for me. And I remember always think, telling her, my soul is dying. And I didn't know what had happened because it didn't make sense to me because I thought, I thought that was it. Like I thought once you had the bigger regular paycheck and a more stable life, that's what would make me feel happy, right? Like that's the answer and the solution. Um, but it turned out it wasn't really a solution for me because the work I was doing wasn't what my soul really longed to do. I missed doing a variety of different things all the time. Like, and yeah, so that, that really stood out for me, the gilded carriage. And then that hunger of the soul really did like light up in me. And I was, I experienced this like desperation to just find something that would make me feel good on the inside. So I really related to that little girl's like soul hunger in that part of the chapter Dr. Estes talks about. So it's interesting hearing you say that feeling of like your your soul is dying or it's killing your soul. Because I definitely had a time in my life, which I will talk about, <laughs> where <laughs> I felt the same way. I use that language because, and it's hard, to, it's a hard thing to, to describe. And actually, I'm wondering if you could, could you actually describe, you know, for our listeners, like what, what that felt like in your body to have that sense of that your soul was dying? Mm -hmm. So for me, I, th I think this manifests differently for everyone, the way how like when your soul is in the wrong place, it might feel different for everyone. For me, it feels like intense existential boredom. I felt a lot of shame about that because I was so bored. And I thought that's just being spoiled. Like I was taught that mm. if I was bored, that just meant I should go clean something, <laughs> you know, just like, like I had no right to be bored, but really what my soul felt was something so deep. And I, now I just have to call it like an intense existential boredom, like this just pain of having zero interest in what I was doing. And I would say that that just hurt my heart. Like actually talking about it now to think about the body, 
I'm slouched over right the second. My shoulders are hunched. I'm like in this hunched up, you know, sad sack position mm-hmm. <laughs> sitting in my chair with my mic. So I think that's kind of how it feels. It's just like I have no energy to even hold up my body. And I remember that sitting at my um, keyboard at my desk. And I remember having no energy to bring my hands up to my keyboard from Mm. my lap. I had like zero deep fatigue, zero, zero, zero energy. And it hurt. It hurt my body and my mind. That's such an interesting visual. I mean, I, I like you're saying that like that deep fatigue, like that's something that that speaks to me. And I hadn't like thought of it in that way. And I'm also glad that you brought up the shame piece of it, because especially when you do have a, a job, it's like, shouldn't everybody want a high paying job and <laughs> you should be happy. And what do you have to complain about? But I think if it's not fulfilling to you, it's like we can have this tug between like our soul desire, that that soul hunger and kind of feeling like I should be grateful for this. And that's that's a hard place to be. It is a really hard, hard place to be. And I want to say it's a really, really common place to be. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. Like, and especially for women, I want to say, like we've been taught a lot of times to just be grateful for what we have and to not really fight for more or better. And so I want to say that if you're in that position, it's kind of an and both thing. Like I was grateful for my paycheck and that paycheck I learned was one, it was wonderful. I mean, paying my bills. Hello. That was great. I loved that feeling. <laughs> Being able to actually like pay my bills. But at the same time, I was also like, wow, this isn't the motivator for me. Like just getting a paycheck alone is not enough for me to feel happy. And so that's what I learned for myself that it's kind of both. It's like I was both grateful to pay my bills and have less of that stress. And I was like, okay, this is a huge thing for me to learn about myself that I need more than a paycheck to feel happy. I need to be doing work that is fun for me. That's Mm -hmm. not boring. Yeah. And so it's like, it sounds like you're speaking to the fact that there was, you became aware that there was a cost that was pretty great, you know, ultimately for not, you know, not getting that fulfillment that you needed from your job. Um, you know, and so that's again, like a tough place to be to kind of realize that. Um, so I'm curious, how did you ultimately break free from this trap or both of these traps? Yeah, I love this question. So freedom for me is the ultimate wild woman feeling like fun and free is how I want to feel all the time in my life. Um, And I want to say, so my little quick caveat, especially when it comes to careers and jobs and money, is that I'll tell how I broke free, but I want to make sure you all know that I'm not giving any career advice. Um, We're not giving any financial advice on our podcast. Like, you know, your job. We're not telling anyone to quit their jobs today or anything like that. Right. So it's just to make sure, you know, I just want to put that caveat out there (laughs) because that's not what we're doing here. You get to make your decisions for your career that really make sense and are right for you. And so um, what happened for me was I just hit a bottom with feeling dead inside. Like I just had an experience of one winter 
kind of feeling the winter blues, but then the winter blues didn't go away in the spring. And I remember being really concerned about that because normally every spring I would feel a little bit happier and a little bit more peppy and a little bit, okay, everything's better. I can go outside again. Everything's fine. But there was one spring where that didn't happen. And so then I had to dive deeper and figure out what is going on. Like this depression doesn't feel right to me. Like this isn't how I want to feel in my life. And so that's when I really started doing that kind of the deeper work that set me on the path I am now where you know I talk about finding your own North Star all the time in our podcast, but that's because it was such a pivotal moment for me. Like doing an exercise from finding your own North Star was what really helped me see one, how bad it had got, like how bad I was feeling. And also that book gave me hope that it actually could be better for real. And I think once I got hope that actually this could change. Like I actually could do work that I'm passionate about and make money that I actually could do something that's better than this. Like, even if it's not perfect, I got hope that it could be better. And I think after like doing finding your own North star, doing the artist way, like really digging into tools that helped me for real, I got a bunch of hope and it was that hope that helped me to actually seek a new profession. And like, I didn't quit my job right away. I stayed at my job while I was figuring it all out. And then I went to part-time. And so I, you know, I slowly let it go as it made sense, but it was hitting that bottom, seeking help, finding that there was hope for a better life that helped me take action steps to actually seek a new career that would really work for me and make my life feel better. Mm-hmm. Thank you for, you know, for talking about that your journey wasn't kind of like one day you woke up, you quit your job and now your life is amazing (laughs) because I think so much like those are the stories that we hear, right? About, um, you know, these like huge success stories or people, you know, being so happy with their life because they made this like split, split second decision. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it's not really what it's like. We, we kind of, we make a decision and we kind of strategize and we make plans and, you know, while it's like we might be making some type of a leap, you know, you were kind of building the bridge closer. So maybe when you took that final leap, it wasn't like jumping over the Grand Canyon. It was like jumping Mm -hmm. over like a little creek, you know, or so to speak. Um, And so I think that's important for our listeners to kind of know too, that a lot of times, like there's a lot of pieces that you kind of have to put in place um, to make it so that makes sense for you. And it's that there is, it is safe enough once you do kind of make that step into something different, if, if that's something you feel like you need to do. I totally agree. It's possible to build bridges. I also love like a metaphor. Something I wrote a while ago, I had this metaphor where I saw like a turtle taking little turtle steps, but going down into a canyon, across a canyon and back up. And that's the kind of metaphor that's coming to me now as you say that, that it's these tiny, tiny steps where you go down, you dig deep, you kind of discover who you are through books like Women Who Run With the Wolves and other books that we'll be reading on our podcast as we continue into the future. And like you do this deeper work and then you're able to take steps to kind of climb up and out of that deep space so you can actually create that life that you really want. But I agree. It's hard work and 
it often doesn't happen overnight, but if it has for you, that's amazing, but it often doesn't happen that way. And like, even like I have my own business, that's the career I love now. And that's tricky. It's hard. It brings up a lot of stuff. It's definitely a healing journey for me to be a creative and have my own business um, and learn how to be financially successful with my own business. It, it, It takes time. It definitely takes time. Today's episode is brought to you by me, Emma Veritas. How is it that some people make writing look so easy? Sometimes it seems like everyone but you is completely fearless. Here's the truth. Writing doesn't have to be so scary or painful. In my free workbook, Three Habits to Calm Your Fear and Get You Writing, I show you how. By doing one or more of these habits before you write, you'll find more ease, less fear, and more words on the page. You can download your workbook today at wildauthenticity.com forward slash three habits. The link is in the show notes. Caitlin, can you tell us what traps stood out for you? So What resonated for me was trap number two, actually, which was the dry old woman, the senescent force. And when I was reading that, the way that I interpret it was, um, you know, being in, finding yourself in maybe a culture or an environment that really is designed or is very intentional about stamping out your soulful nature. Right out of college, I started working at a domestic violence shelter um, for survivors of intimate partner violence. And I was an advocate there. Um, and when I started, I was incredibly passionate about the work that we were doing at the safe house. I'm still really passionate about that cause, even though I'm not actively engaged in the same way. And when I started, I saw so many ways, like from this very fresh perspective, all these ways I felt that the safe house could improve the ways that we served our clients, the ways that we as advocates could be better supported um, to you know, be healthier in our jobs. So there was longevity and we got the support and care that we needed so that we could then support our clients. In the beginning, like I spoke up a lot. I shared my ideas like really passionately. Um, but then as the chapter kind of says something, and this is a quote from it, that something normally vibrant is about to be starched flat. <laughs> and that is exactly how I felt. I felt like my passion, my ideas, my creativity was like, over and over and over kind of crushed. And I remember one of my, so I, I kind of two different jobs. I had two different supervisors. And I remember one of my supervisors going to her with this, this idea that I had for the transitional housing program. And I was so excited about it. And I wanted to run it by her before I brought it to the administration. And she kind of laughed at me because she's like, Oh, you're so cute. Like, you know, all this passion, all these ideas literally don't even bother. They're just going to say no to you. I was so on one hand disheartened, but then I was all the other side of it was like a little bit emboldened. Like I'm going to go, I'm going to go like tell my idea. And it did become clear to me that the administration was not super fond of questioning the ways that they were doing things, not really fond of me pushing back on policies that I didn't feel were um, trauma informed or, um, you know, things like that. And they let me know that I was definitely a thorn in their side. That was, you know, really hard for me. Like there certainly were these really powerful punishments and rewards for those of us in, you know, at the safe house that either fell in line or those who like push back. 
And they didn't encourage me and guide me in that process. Like I was coming in green and like didn't always know how like things Mm -hmm. worked within the work environment. But it's like they kind of I felt like they sort of like wanted to like break me a little bit, like break my spirit. And I think part of that came from one, the admin side. It was like, we don't want to be questioned. Don't status, don't question the status quo. But then the other part of it was being surrounded by all these advocates who their ideas had been crushed so many times that they were cynical mm-hmm. and they just wanted to like pop my, my, you know, burst my bubble as soon as they could. I think out of almost, I think in some ways actually out of like wanting to keep me safe and not have me like let down, but that's not a great, not the best way to start out your professional career and in, you know, social services by any means. Yeah. And so as you're talking, I'm really feeling that energy of just that flattened energy. So I'm actually curious to hear when you think about that and everything you just said about working at the domestic violence safe house, I'm curious what part of the story really stood out for you when you think about everything you just said. So the part where she's brought into this home. It's kind of like she's she takes the invitation to get into the carriage, but then it's the part where she's actually living within this environment with this woman, um, this old woman that has, you know, a very specific idea of how things should be done. And she kind of entered into it maybe thinking it was going to be this great thing, um, that her life was going to be better and easier. Talk about like paycheck, super nice. <laughs> um, but ultimately it just it wasn't a space where she thought she could maybe come in and, and um, thrive and flourish, but instead it was that environment was very much meant to control her and, and to kind of get her in line and get her to be that, that good, that good little girl um, rather than who she is and, and encouraging her to be like her brightest self. It was kind of like stuffing her into that too small life that she talks about in the chapter. I love that. And I think it makes so much sense thinking about that little girl in her new home was not going to be allowed to have ideas about ways to better things. Like I'm imagining her having an idea about like a cool painting she could hang up or like a fun art project she could do or maybe create like a cool play gym outside or something like her ideas were not going to be listened to. She was going to be squashed by the old woman. And so she really entered a life that created ease in one aspect of her life. But like you're saying, like, and Dr. Estes is saying, flattened her in every other area. And so the cost was really big Mm -hmm. for the little girl. And it sounds like also for you with your job. So then the next question is, how did you break free from that? What happened? How did you break free from this trap? Although in a lot of ways, they really were kind of successful in breaking me. There definitely were a lot of times where I did feel really dull and flat. And you, like you said that, you know, kind of like my soul was dying because, you know, here I came into this um, environment, so passionate, so like looking forward to this opportunity to, you know, creatively and, and passionately in, you know, every way that I possibly could to try to help and support these women was kind of, you know, felt like it stamped out. But there was always an internal spark that would reignite my belief that I could stand up for what I believed in. 
you know, with, with my experience of starting and immediately having the more veteran advocates, you know, to kind of curb my enthusiasm and to kind of bring me back down to earth and um, kind of put down my ideas toward the end of my time at the shelter, I really noticed how much there's a lot of turnover at that point, you know, and so I was seeing this happen over and over to all the new, and they would always call them the blue eyed, bushy tailed advocates um, that, you know, thought they were there to change the world. And they would like look down on them in so many ways. And it like, even saying that kind of makes me want to cry because I truly think that they can, like, I think (laughs) we need that passion and we need to support that in people. And so I was, I would pull aside, you know, my fellow advocates and I would just say, you know, call them out on that and say, it's not okay. We need to be supporting these women um, to be creative and to think outside the box and and to know that they can make a difference because that's the only way that anyone's going to be able to stay in that industry for a long time. And there's a huge burnout rate. So at least as like when I was leaving, I didn't want to perpetuate that culture as much as I had control over it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's kind of, you know, taking, you know, a step way, you know, way into the future where I am now generating ideas is built into my business. I get to generate and implement my ideas constantly. And that's what I do for my clients. Like if a client has an idea, like I am all in, I'm like, okay, how do we make it happen? I'm always like the, like <laughs> my friend called me like the problem solving ninja. Like, I'm like, okay, how do we, how do we solve this? How do we make this happen? I'm always believe that that there's a way. And that's the same mentality I had going into that job that was very much pushed down. But now it's like, like that is such a core part of my philosophy as a coach. Mm. So it was actually kind of a cool full circle reflection for me to say that out loud. Yeah, I love that. And it sounds like the path to freedom for you from this trap was claiming your amazing idea generating brain as your genius as your gift as the thing that you actually help people with like they tried to stifle that in you and looking back in it I can say wow that's really too bad for them that they did that because they could have had you know the gift of all your amazing ideas Mm -hmm. right like yeah that was a real gift and it is such a big part of your genius so I love that and I think that people listening that's something to think about that a lot of times when you're in a situation that's not right for your soul, people will say or criticize you for something that's actually a gift, mm-hmm. like something that you're actually incredible at. It just that gift for them, like it doesn't fit into the rigid idea of whatever they have going on. And it can be threatening actually- to their power structure or whatever. Exactly. Like it's can be threatening. And so it tries to get stifled. But a lot of times it's that exact thing that is your power. That is the thing that you have to bring to the world that can make a huge, huge, huge difference. So I know you talked a lot about the trap, the first trap and the third trap. Were there any others that either you felt tied into that story or you have another story that connected to the traps in this, in this chapter. I do. So I would say trap number four, which is injury to basic instinct. And the last trap, the dancing out of control, like obsession and addiction really, really um, got to me because 
with the story, like when she talks about injury to basic instinct as being something where like you no longer know that you're supposed to run. I really did have injury to basic instinct. Like when I think about that work and how long I stayed, like there was definitely a point and I can feel this point now. Like sometimes I do a project or a situation or just something I'm like really invested in. And sometimes I can feel like, oh, the time for this is over. Like I had a blog called Magical Healers blog for about three years that I really invested into and I loved it. And it was all about like how to help people who have like magical healing capabilities, who love energy work, that type of thing, how to help them embrace their medicine and what they're here to bring to the world. And that was my kind of my first life coaching business. And I loved it. And then there came a time where inside myself, I knew it was over. I was like, okay, this was an amazing blog, an amazing writing project, and I can feel it's ended and time to go. But with that cubicle job, I really was so disconnected. I didn't know, like I couldn't feel that feeling. And I just kept staying because I was so clamped into the idea that that was the right job. So I just had to make that job work. So I would just obsessively do things like change my screensaver, mm-hmm. or like put up a beautiful picture. Like every day I was like, okay, how can I make my soul be alive here? And I got so obsessed with trying to fix that situation that I didn't feel that instinctual tug of, okay, run. <laughs> This is killing you. Go somewhere else. Like there are other jobs. There are other jobs. It's okay. Like you can get something different. Something else can work for you. What part of the fairy tale would, would you relate to with this part of your story? So I think that's the part of the fairy tale where she, when she gets into the guilty carriage, but it's kind of like you were talking about like when she's in there, like the second her shoes got put into a fire, she should have been like, screw you lady. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, goodbye. I'm going to go make new shoes. I was doing pretty good. Like out in the forest. I mean, it wasn't the best. I was super stressed about money. It was hard, but I had my freaking shoes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think like that's the part where she got into that situation The lady set her shoes on fire and then she stayed. And that I relate to a lot. Like I just stayed. And this absolutely goes into the dancing out of control because I stayed and then I played the victim. Mm. Like I kind of lost my sense of, of sovereignty and choice and what I would do is like, I was so bored. (laughs) So what I would do, and everyone knows, like, I've had trouble with alcoholism. So that fed into what I'm about to talk about. But I was so bored that I just wanted to do something fun. So like, at the end of the workday, I would go home. And I would just be like, in my apartment. And I'm like, Oh, it's just continuing to be boring here. You know, like I didn't do anything to feed my soul. So I would go out like, and I had this nightlife, this like bar life. And that's where all my fun came from and sort of playing the victim. What I've learned through sobriety and recovery is that me playing the victim 
and just like sort of staying at that job and being like, oh, I, my boss said this to me today or oh, this happened today or oh, and there's nothing I can do about it. Like never standing up for myself, never seeking a new situation that fed to like my excuses that then led me to a drink every night. And I just really wanted to feel a sense of fun. And that was my new red shoes (laughs) that she became obsessed with and that made her dance out of control. And that led to negative consequences because they weren't her creativity, like those glittery red shoes. You know, they, they weren't her soul's work. They weren't her art. They weren't that thing. They were this replacement that kind of looked the same, but it wasn't the same. And so that would be for me, like, like the nightlife felt fun but it had a lot of negative consequences. And so um, I think that's kind of how that ended up all playing out from like my instinct was injured. I didn't know to like go get a different job. And then I, that's the cycle I got into was replacing the fun with the nightlife. And how did you ultimately break free from that? So for me, I hit another bottom. (laughs) Well, the first bottom I hit was my sobriety bottom. So then I got sober and I still worked at my job. So it's like, you know, it took me a little while for to hit that next bottom of feeling, realizing my job was killing my soul. took me a little while because first I had to get sober and recover and all that. But I would say the first step to me breaking free was sobriety, but then also was like, As a result of that, my life changed from a nightlife because I wasn't going out to bars anymore to a day life. And I rediscovered that I'm a freaking morning person. I wake up super early, like around 6 a.m. just naturally. Like I don't have an alarm clock or anything. I'm just one of these like morning people. And so I love to wake up. And the things I actually love to do pretty much happen in the daylight. Like I started going hiking, spending time outdoors, like doing things that, you know, require creative energy. For me, I do those things in the morning. That's when I have the most creative energy. And so I think that was my big freeing thing was like turning to a life that actually felt fulfilling for me was turning into a day life, mm-hmm. from a night life if that makes sense at yeah, all. It does. That's where like all the things that are actually fun for me happen in the day. And that's when I started to recover my soul, even when I was still at my job. And this is like, you know, I think what we were talking about earlier to create that bridge um, between the life you're living and the life you want to live. Like you can stay at your job and begin to recover your soul. And that's what happened for me was that freedom of starting to feel nourished and starting to have times that were honest to goodness fun for me with out a negative consequence. Yeah. And sometimes it is that we start to find, refind ourselves, even when we're not in the situation we ultimately want to be in. Mm-hmm. That process can start, you know, before it's not like once I get there, then this healing can start to happen. They can be happening at the same time or, you know, the order is sometimes different than what we think. Yeah, exactly. And it's because I was doing things that were fun for me, I actually had more energy and not less. Like I always thought, oh, I can't go hiking on a weekend because I don't have the energy. But actually going hiking 
on a weekend gives me energy, <laughs> it turns out. And I was like, oh, now I feel super energized, so energized that I can like search for a new job or do a different thing. It's funny, you always think like, oh, you don't have energy to do the thing you're going to love. But it's kind of opposite because the thing you love is like a battery recharge and it gives you energy. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's me. So that's my injured instinct and dancing out of control, obsession and addiction. How about you? Were there any of these later traps that you identified with or stood out for you? So, yeah. So the the trap number five, which is about um, the secret life and kind of living this double life. And then also the part in trap number six, where it's like cringing before the collective. And then also the seventh, which is about faking it and trying to be good and normalizing the abnormal. So they all kind of feed in, but I'll try to, you know, show how they connect. So definitely, you know, speaking to the trap number five around the secret life, that's, you know, that was the time where a lot of myself was getting pushed underground, not only were my ideas and maybe there are times where I was being quieter at my, my job at the safe house, but that was also a time where I didn't feel the creativity. I, I lacked a lot of energy. Um, like what you're saying, that feeling of not being able to lift your hands up to the keyboard. I remember not really even being able to sit up at my desk. Like I leaned over to like type and just, you know, struggle to, to kind of be upright. Um, but it's like parts of yourself get kind of gets shoved underground, but then the pressure kind of builds and it bubbles up other ways. And I would see that in terms of like my creativity, not being necessarily feeling valued within the agency. So I, my creativity would come out in my, the way my office looked. So my office was decorated with like tons of colorful art and I had vision boards and I had created this really cool book that I still have that I kept um, little notes from clients that, you know, when they would say that I had, you know, really helped them that day or that our session had been really meaningful, um, little drawings from kids or things that people would say that made me laugh. I would just, I would write all these things down to kind of remind me, and like I was grasping at anything that reminded me um, of, you know, any sort of like lightness um, and positivity and reminding myself that. I, I can make a difference. I, this, what I'm doing does matter. And there were definitely parts of me. So then it kind of goes into um, like the kind of sneaking around. Like there were times where I would do things within the program that I was helping manage kind of like if, if it wasn't such a big change, I would just do it anyway. I would implement creativity or do things that maybe I weren't expressly like told that I could do because I just couldn't not you know, do what I thought was in the best interest of my client, or I couldn't not pour my creativity into the support groups that I was running and things like that. But I definitely would feel um, like that, that kind of like defiance was building. And so it like, again, it would, like they talk about in that part of the chapter too, how, you know, it'd be like a Roman candle going berserk and kind of like that, like that explosion. And I wouldn't say that I exploded, but I definitely would feel you know, some of these interactions with my supervisors being, I was less and less poised. Um, and I felt like I was, at times I was kind of unraveling and I would, you know, come into like a conflict with them, um, which actually kind of goes into the sixth part where you're being very much 
you know, cringing before the collective. I was um, really being criticized a lot and my intentions were being questioned. And, you know, one of my superiors would tell me things like that I was manipulated, but tell me things like I'm manipulative or implying that I didn't have good intentions. Um, And I started to question myself. I started to really think, you know, really there was nobody else in my life had, who had relayed that, those characteristics back to me. And so part of me is like, well, is she the only person who's ever been honest with me that I'm this type of person? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so it was, it was definitely a really, like, it was, it was a hard time for me. Yeah, that sounds really hard. And so I'm curious, how did that then all feed into trap number seven, the faking it to try to be good? Like, because it sounds like you were kind of sneaking the soul life with your art. You were cringing before the collective of, you know, the, this gaslighting, sad experience. And then did you go into that state of like trying to be good or making it feel normal or trying to be okay with what you weren't? really okay with? Yeah. There were times where I just felt like, okay, I need to kind of get in line. I need to approach this differently. Um, which maybe in some ways were definitely true. Like there probably Mm -hmm. were better ways that I could have, um, approached certain aspects, but, you know, for example, we had some policies in place that were not trauma informed and sometimes decisions were being made about clients that were so rigid. You know, it's like, they talk about in this, this time of like normalizing the abnormal and, and faking it is, you know, sometimes it's like not being able, like the power for you to like speak up for something that's not okay is kind of taken away from you. Um, and there was sort of nothing I could do. So like, as one example in the shelter, they had an, there was an eight week stay for clients and then clients could apply for a one week extension, um, for, you know, certain circumstances, and I had a client who needed one more day for her to go from the shelter to a safe place to live. And because she'd already gotten that one week extension, they they just said no. It was just rigid, no. And it was like, for me, it was like, this is not for the greater good of this client. This rigidity is like so hard, but I didn't really, I didn't have any power. So I kind of had to, I mean, I advocated for it, but ultimately I had to kind of go along and and then go and tell my client that no, she couldn't stay for that one more night. So I was having to like necessarily enforce these rules and things that I didn't necessarily feel good about or agree with. And so what part of the story, like if you tie that back into the red shoes and the story of the little girl, what part of the story can you relate that experience to? Well, I think in general, you know, how she's she's, you know, she's got her, her shiny new red shoes and, and, you know, they've been taken away from her and she keeps sneaking them, (laughs) um, to put them on. And then obviously, you know, not so great things are happening. And, and there is that sense of kind of, you know, a little bit going into like getting a little bit out of control, kind of losing herself in that process, you know, and then it's like the part where, you know, she's going to get confirmed and she's, she's basically getting swept into this process that doesn't really resonate with her. And in the process, she's getting chastised for trying to show some of her, some of herself, which, you know, again, it was the fake self um, with her, you know, shiny shoes. 
you know, so it's, it's like this, it's, it's interesting. It's like this kind of like interesting how it all interweaves and there's lots of overlapping for me in all these different mm-hmm. um, parts of the traps. We, you know, we were talking about this actually before we started recording that this chapter kind of was a lot for us to chew through and it's hard to even explain it in really succinct, clean ways because the different traps do connect and feed into one another. Yeah, they really do. Because it's like you can see your whole career trajectory, at least for Caitlin and I, it's so much about career for us and our stories. Like I can see my whole career trajectory in all of the traps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's like some happened before, some happened after. Um, but I love the way how you're talking about this because these traps have just feeling like, oh, I need to just get in line. I think that's the ultimate key to these ones that you're talking about. Like that feeling of like, I need to change myself. I need to get in line. And that's what needs to happen here. Mm -hmm. And then like not being able to sustain that and then sneaking things are still going. It's like, cause that's not really sustainable trying to get in line. At least I was never able to sustain that even though I would drop into it. So what I'm curious about is how did you ultimately break free from that, that trap of feeling like you just needed to get in line and like go along with everything. I just realized that I could never fit in if I wanted to survive. And sometimes it's so hard, like saying like my soul was dying because you're like, you know, almost it's like, I feel like I, I felt like at the time, like I'm being so dramatic, but really it's how I felt. Like I just felt, I felt dull. I felt flat. I felt like I was squeezed into this tiny box that I just you know, like my arm was like popping out, (laughs) you know, it's like my limbs are popping all over the place. Like I couldn't fit into it. And there was a point where I just had this resolve that I actually refused to be part of it, that I, you know, it's like that rebellion, you know, kind of going into that, um, that sneaking and hiding. And then there's like the rebellion that kind of comes out of that. And while I was still at the safe house, I started the coaching program and there's that quote where she says, a woman who a woman who sneaks little sniffs of good air um, is never content with with is never content with not having more. You know, and I'm kind of paraphrasing how she said that, but it was like to me, the coaching program was like, oh, there's more out there. And once I got a sense of that, it's like my resolve even like deepened further. And then I started to like really confidently question this environment that I had been in and these these messages that I had been been told and and I'm realizing like, no, I'm not like a troublemaker. I'm not someone who's like conniving and, and sneaky in like a bad way, but I was, I was doing what I needed to survive. And I was doing what I felt like I had to do to do what I felt was right. Um, it was like in the best interest for my clients or like for my own well-being. you know, through that, I had so much encouragement really from my husband. You know, he's like, you've, that, he was that, that constant reminder, this isn't working for you. You've got to come out you know, get out of this job. You can't, you know, work at a place where you come home and you have to like curl up in a ball for 45 minutes to stop feeling like physically sick from your day to like rejoin your life. Like this isn't working for you. And I had amazing friends that were constantly reminding me of who I was. And I would tell them about the interactions and the things that were being reflected back to me by my boss. And they just reminded me of who I really am through the lens of people who I actually care what their opinion is of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and honestly, like you had such a huge impact on me. You were coaching me so much through this time. 
um, you know, it's like, I remember you drawing some Oracle cards for me that just one of them was, it was called, um, crossroads. Oh yeah. And it was kind of like, there's not a right or wrong decision, but you have to pick one. And that was part of what really helped me to have that clarity of like, I just need to decide to, to go for this other path. That's not here. And so, you know, I ended up actually like quitting my job without having another job lined up. And I think for me, like how, again, it's like that full circle thing is I spent so much time settling for living in this too small life that really is my mission in life to never settle for less. That's why it's on my website, never settle for less (laughs) than the life that you want to have to be fully able to express yourself, to use all of your skills. And I want to help as many people as possible to do the same because I know what it feels like to not be encouraged to do that. And I don't know about you, but having gone through this, and I think she's so right about this, is like I would, you know, I'd never wor- wish this on my worst enemy. Not that I have any enemies, <laughs> but, um, you know, to go through this. But I, in a lot of ways, I am grateful to have gone through this experience because now I am so sensitive to what these traps feel like. And now it is this wisdom that I have that if anything in my life starts to resemble these, like I have that, you know, that instinct now. My instinct is no longer injured to be able to say, I want nothing to do with that. I so relate to that. Yeah. Like if anything comes up that looks like any of these traps in my life, I, yeah, I have the instinct to run yes. and to like figure out what's going on to run and also to dive deep and to make the change. But now it is for me, like small course cor- corrections that come up. I think that makes sense because it's like we were saying at the very beginning, like these traps are just available for us. They're still available for us if we want to like get into these traps. And I think it's now all about like the small course corrections. Like, like recently I found myself in a little mini burnout that did not resemble in any way the burnout I experienced at the end of um, my cubicle job career, but it was enough that it was a huge red flag for me to figure out like what was going on and to course correct that. And I agree, like after breaking free and doing this type of deep personal development study, it's like, okay, yeah, I don't want to get back into that again. And that is what motivates me to keep going with my business most of the time. Like it's helping people, but it's also, I do not want to replay on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad that you said that, that these traps are always available for us. So, and I feel like that even though I am much more sensitive, you know, like if I'm being fully honest, like I, there's definitely like one of these traps that I'm seeing in my life right now, in a way it's, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not as extreme, but it's there and I'm aware of it. And so I'm able to be more proactive and being like, okay, so I know, I know how to deal with this. And now I just need to put the pieces in place to, to move, you know, out of that space. Today's episode is brought to you by me, your host, Caitlin Bosshart. I believe that not only does the world have space for the biggest, brightest version of yourself, it needs what only you can create. I'm a life coach for the multi-passionate at heart whose endless curiosity, eclectic interests, creative endeavors, and vision for their lives have never quite fit into any one box, no matter how hard you've tried. Instead, we think outside the box. I help you embrace who you are, harness your unique set of talents, 
and support you as you forge a less conventional path, one that is fulfilling and energizing to your multi-passionate nature. Sign up for a free 30-minute call with me at caitlinbossart.com and let's see if we'd make a good team. The link is in the show notes below. Okay, so Caitlin, what quote for you in this chapter really represented that essence of living with a full heart? I love this quote under the handmade red shoes section. And the quote is this. The handmade shoes are marks of her rising out of a mean psychic existence into a passionate life of her own design. Her shoes represent an enormous and literal step towards integration of her resourceful feminine nature in day-to-day life. It does not matter if her life is perfect. She has her joy. She will evolve. I love that. Can you say more about how this quote resonated for you? Well, especially that part of a passionate life of her own design. I just believe that we are the artists of our own life and we can decide what we want it to look like. And it might not be the easier path and it might, you know, come with some pain and struggle along the way, but it's worth it because there's so much joy that comes out of creating something with your own hands, your own brain, your own creativity, than something that is just, you know, served to you on that, on a silver platter. It just, it's never going to have the, the depth and the richness that really leads to that fulfilling life. What is the quote for you that speaks to having a free voice? So I actually really love the very last paragraph of this chapter. And it reads, if you want to re-summon wild woman, refuse to be captured. With instincts sharpened for balance, jump anywhere you like, howl at will, take what there is, find out all about it, let your eyes show your feelings, look into everything, see what you can see. Dance in red shoes, but make sure they're the ones you've made by hand you will be one vital woman. Mm, I love that. And how does that quote speak to you? So I think that the essence of a free voice is in self-expression. And so I'm a writing coach, but I also just love the idea of opening up your voice, however that voice wants to come through, like however it is that you want to uniquely express yourself, which can be through art and creativity, but it also can be just through how you live, like how you go about your days and how you look someone in the eye and how you follow your curiosity and just how you just make your way day to day through your life. And so I think this describes that perfectly of what it can feel like when when you're a person who just can express themselves in their unique way. And for me, this is like a compass point to move towards, right? It's like, this is the hope that actually resummoning wild women is possible. And when you do these things, you will be one vital woman. So this for me is like the North star of what it means to have a free voice and expressing yourself. Yeah. I love that. So thank you everyone. That's the end of our episode for today. And we do want to remind you that 
If you go to our affiliate shop at wildauthenticity.com forward slash podcast shop, you will find our link to the red shoes, which is Clarissa Pinkola Estes's audio class, which will it will go over the chapter we're studying, but you'll be able to listen to her voice and there might be some other extra nugget or treasure of wisdom in there that you can carry away. So if you go to our special link and you buy it through our affiliate link, you'll be able to support Clarissa Pinkola Estes, Sounds True, our podcast, and your learning. And as always, we would love to hear your stories. So right now we have our community is on Facebook. So you can come and join our Facebook group called Full Heart Free Voice Podcast Community. And we would love to hear from you. What trap stood out for you? Um, where are you with all of this and with your thinking of the red shoes? Let's gather together and study our story. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Emma Veritas and Caitlin Bosshart. You can find out more about me, Emma, at my website, wildauthenticity.com, where you can also download your free workbook, Three Habits to Calm Your Fear and Get You Writing. And you can find out more about me, Caitlin, at my website, caitlinbossart.com, and on Instagram at caitlin underscore bossart. The nicest thing that you can do for us is to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. To stay connected with us, join the conversation in our Facebook group, follow along with us on Instagram, and sign up for our monthly newsletter. You'll find all the links in our show notes. A special thank you to the amazing artists whose music is featured in our podcast, Wally Ingram, Stevie Black, and Tom Freund. You heard portions of their tracks, Shine a Light, and Who Do You Love from their record, Spa Day. And thanks to Caitlin Bosshart for creating our beautiful cover art. And thank you to Kirit Bossu for all his audio and technical help. And a huge thank you to Emma Veritas for her editing magic. Last but not least... Thank you to you, our listeners.